Welcome to the Inspired Teacher's Guide podcast. We are Kim Wilkins and Laura Wooldridge, just two teachers trying to podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us. Our goal is to help you by discussing a variety of topics that will help you as a whole in the same way we want to focus on the whole child. On this podcast, we will be talking in and outside the classroom. Hi, everybody. Hey, everybody. Today, we have a guest that we will get to know. Laura and I already know her very well. And then we'll jump into our new content, which is focused on a very important topic, engagement. And we'll end with our, I used to think, but now I know. And that myth will be focused on, guess what? Engagement. Okay, everybody. Our guest is, I've got to get my drum roll ready. Renee Calhoun. Woo! Welcome to the podcast. We've talked about Renee on this podcast we have. a few times. Ashwin and I have both worked with Renee um, for many years. I actually lived with her. <laughs> we were, we were three years, I think. And I taught her niece and nephew in college. And Kim and I just love her so much. And we know you will too. Yeah. Okay, Renee, will you share a little bit of your story, your background, positions you've held, family, whatever you want to share? Sure. First of all, let me say you two are wonderful, um, and I so much appreciate y'all inviting me on. Um, well, my story may be a little lengthy. This is my 31st year in education. Um, I've done a lot of different things in those 31 years, and honestly can say each thing that I, each position that I've had or role has prepared me for the next one. So I started out as a classroom teacher. I taught health and science and um, learned quickly that I didn't know a whole lot. I got in that classroom and there were kids in that classroom and I learned that I needed to learn a lot. And so my first year of teaching really was not great. At the end of the year, wanted to leave and not return year two, not because of anybody else's fault, but my own. Um, I didn't have the confidence to ask for help, and so I just kind of suffered on my own. And so the end of year two came, and um, I had to pay some bills, or the end of year one, I had to pay some bills. And so I went back year two, and so glad that I did, um, because now I'm in year 31, and I feel like I'm where where I have been called to be. So I'm Mm -hmm. glad that I persevered. Um, went from classroom teacher, oh, was an assistant high school girls basketball coach during that time, was a cheer coach. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that about a, you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, basketball is my passion still. Did you play, did you play yes. basketball? I did. I did. Yeah, I love I it. Listen. I will. Believe it or not, I started out as post and then I ended at guard. I was okay. the same height in the seventh grade that I am right now. So go <laughs> <I> figure. <laughs> okay. Well, that explains yeah. it. Then I was an in-school suspension teacher on Saturdays. And believe it or not, I enjoyed that. Um, really? Taught a, I taught a night class for athletes that didn't have the GPA they needed. So I spent some night time with a, a lot of athletes. Um, then I went into administration and I was an assistant principal. And then um, later on, uh, moved into a head principal position, learned a lot. Um, I would say one of my strengths was being a good manager. 
but you know what? You got to know curriculum and instruction also if you're going to be an administrator. So I had some really good mentors that allowed me to be vulnerable and say, I don't know and teach me. And they did. They taught me and they gave me lots of opportunities to attend professional developments. I just made up my mind. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. I mean, like I took a full year of just learning. I was going all the time to professional developments, reading, just all kinds of things to try to learn. Um, and that really led me to what I currently do, uh, which is working on an adolescent literacy project. Um, and it's for all learners, but uh, we champion struggling learners. Um, and so, so what's that I called? still do that. It's called the um, strategic instruction model. And we actually have that in the state of Arkansas. It originated out of the University of Kansas Center for Research and Learning, still housed there. Um, but there are some states that have that initiative. Um, and we are one of them. And it's powerful. I lived it um, as a principal in a building. Very, very powerful. So I, I went to champion that cause because I saw the power behind it. And I also um, do some mentoring with first-year teachers, and it goes back to where I started. You know, my first year was not good, and it was not because of anybody else, facilities, resources, or anything. It was my lack of confidence. And so um, that's a passion. Um, and so I mentor some, some new teachers as well. So that's pretty much my career in a nutshell over 31 years. Still love it. Um, don't see myself retiring anytime soon. With the day I lose my passion, it'll be the day I retire. And I haven't lost that passion yet. And then family-wise, I've been married um, 28 years. We have three kiddos. My oldest one is a school administrator. Go figure, right? Me too. Me too. I, was, I mean, I know, you know. Yeah. I know. She's all grown. And my middle one, middle one works uh, with children with autism. Um, and so, you know, she's not in the educational setting per se, but yet she is an educator because she works with behavior with um, autistic children. And then my baby who's getting married next month, uh, yes, um, is has a business degree and he's in the midst of his master's right now in, in business administration. How can that even be? Time flies. It seems like they were <laughs> a little really bitty does. yesterday. So mm -hmm. that's a little bit about, about me. Yeah, you were talking about um, your first year teaching. You and I have been teaching about the same amount of time. And uh, over, yeah, we have actually. And I, I'm i thinking about those first years for us because we didn't have mentor teachers. That wasn't, no. that was a different world, a different time. So how did you survive that? You know, I look back on it and I really get upset with myself when I think about it because I, I did have good people around me. I didn't have a mentor assigned to me, mm -hmm. but I was surrounded by good people. I just lacked the confidence to be able to say, I don't know, help me. I was scared oh, yeah. if I admitted or if I was vulnerable that they wouldn't want to have me back and I wouldn't have a job. And so I just really suffered. I can say the kiddos, even though classroom management was not my strength year one. Now it did become my strength starting year two because I had a game plan after year one, but the kids <laughs> really were the ones that kept me going because I really went into education 
because of kids. I mean, it really wasn't for a subject. I'm just being dead honest. I mm -hmm. wanted to be a difference maker and I was pretty good at building relationships with kids. And that's really what kept me going and surviving day after day after day. Um, but I went back here too. And I was like, I will have a game plan before day one in that classroom. And it will not look like year one and being purposeful and intentional with planning for year two, being reflective, what did mm -hmm. not work, what worked, and then getting that game plan and then starting to listen to colleagues. I mean, I would intently listen to what they had to say to try to build my own background knowledge. And so year two was much, much better. But um, the kiddos is really, uh, I would say, that's why I kept going back every day and surviving. I think this is why new teachers are so receptive to you, Renee, is because you you have such a good story and and you can empathize with them. And, and I think they you're real when you're real. You know what? I didn't do such a great job. And mm -hmm. let me tell you where the mistakes I made. And if you mess up, it's okay. You know, I've, I'm here to help. I'm beside you and with you. I think oh. it's so important for all teachers to remember that we don't have to do it alone. You know, a lot of times we can feel like we're on an island because we're in that room all the time, but opening the door and, and asking for help is huge. I, I should have done it. I was like you, Renee, that first year, I was just trying to do it on my own and how much I could have benefited from working with others. Oh, for sure. Me too. And you know, Kim, going back to what you said too, I tell my story at the very beginning when I meet new teachers, because I want them to know we need you. We need you to stay in this field and your one might be tough, but you're, as Kim, uh, Laura said, you're not going to be by yourself. We're going right. to be in this together and we don't expect you to know everything. And it's okay if you make mistakes, right. we're going to help you through this. And I also tell them, I don't know everything. I may have 31 years of experience, but I don't know everything. So we're going to do this together. That's we're going right. to figure so out much what you need. But we need those new teachers to have that support and to persevere and stay determined because you're two, y'all know is so much better than your one. You just got to, oh, you just got to stick it yeah. out. Yeah. Well, and to be really, you know, reflective about, you know, what's going well and what, what didn't go well and really work on that plan. I, I totally agree with you, Renee, coming in with a game plan, we can always tweak it, but it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Teachers, I use two words like, a lot. I always say you got to be purposeful and intentional with what you do. Yes. You've got to be, you've got to have that game plan because you're going to go into that classroom and those kids are going to take you somewhere and it may not be what you're, where you want to go. So you right. better have a game plan. <laughs> you better. Connie, I worked for Connie Choate, who I love. Mm -hmm. She's listening. Connie Cho, you changed my life. She's one of the best Aww. people I've ever met. She taught at BB. She was the Reading First director for the state of Arkansas when I worked for Reading First. And um, she used to say, get a plan and work the plan. Those two things. Get a plan and work the plan. I raised my kids on get a plan and work. They, they quote that back to me now, Mom. Mom, you always told me get a plan and work the plan. Well, I borrowed that from Connie Cho. I learned that from her, but... Yeah, you got to have a plan and then work on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Be intentional and purposeful. Okay, girls. Well, we're going to hit this content deep because it's amazing. I know. Uh, Your thing, Laura. It is so my thing. You know, if I could hit the road, 
if, if I were in the presidential campaign, this would be my, what do you call it? This platform. would be my platform. Would be my platform. <laughs> well, I've got two platforms, understanding behavior and engagement, but this is one of them. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. uh, okay. I, yes. Thought of, or we thought of Renee when we were planning this episode because Renee uses a term. She says, we'll backdoor something. And so I want to explain that. I quote you all the time when I say it. Would you explain backdooring to people? Sure. You know, and this is what backdooring means to me. It may mean something differently to to you or someone else, but I'm like, Laura, engagement's my jam. I mean, that's what I strive for in the classroom is that I am a facilitator of learning, a guide on the side. Not that there's not time for direct instruction, but I, this, I met this man one time who said the person that does the most talking does the most learning. And that is so true. So mm-hmm. with, with backdooring with engagement, of course, once we identify what our students are supposed to know and be able to do, then I start looking purposefully and intentionally with, okay, so what engaging strategies and resources can I use to help students master those goals? And then when I start looking at engagement, I'm not just building engaging tasks. I am backdooring building of relationships, me building relationships with my students, my students building relationships with one another, learning to persevere and stay determined in a group setting if they're working on a group project. Um, It's basically building a community of learners in the classroom. I am backdooring that through those engaging tasks and Actually, we're helping students build those social and emotional learning and executive skills that they need to be successful in life. And Absolutely. so I backdoor those. They don't just, I don't purposely say, here's what we're doing. Sometimes I do call it what it is. Hey, we are working in a group and you're going to be working on this skill or learning this skill, but you're also going to be learning to collaborate with your classmates. So sometimes I'm very purposeful with telling them that, but every time I'm building an engaging task, there is a bigger purpose in mind than just being in a group working together or with a partner working together. Oh, she's. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I also think when we focus on engagement that we backdoor classroom management Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that that is, I, I always tell my students, you know, when I am planning, I am planning, of course, what I have to teach, but I am thinking about how I engage you. And if I engage you, then I don't have to worry about you being on your phone or doing other things, you know, because a, a, a board person or there's, there's no time for off task behavior when the engagement is there or, and I also think that accountability comes with engagement. It's not like I'm up there entertaining with the show. It is, we are doing things and the social pressure of participating is very helpful. And then all of a sudden Kim's not back there passing notes to Tim. She's doing what she's supposed to be doing. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Yeah. You know, classroom management and instruction go hand in hand. If you don't have good classroom management, then you're not going to have good teaching and learning that takes place. 
But just because you have a good lesson doesn't mean that you're going to have good classroom management. So definitely it backdoors that classroom management piece and the accountability. If we set our groups up correctly, where they have roles, so everybody's responsible for something within that engaging task, then it's like you said, there's not an opportunity to get off task. And we're a facilitator, so that means we're on our feet, working that room, watching, listening, giving input, answering questions, clarifying. And so the whole class is engaged. It's so powerful. Yes, teaching and learning does go hand in hand, but it can also be mutually exclusive. And I've seen this so much in classrooms where the teacher has this spectacular lesson and really does a good job delivering it. Like she knows her, he or she knows, they know their content. They do a good job presenting it, but their classroom management is such that kids are not, not engaged in the lesson. There's, I mean, it, it falls apart. It's almost like there's a glass between the teacher and the students and the kids are out there doing something and the teacher's back here doing her thing and she's working hard and her brain's growing, but they're not there. They're just not there. So you got to really be purposeful and intentional and plan on how are these kids going to engage in this lesson? What are they going to do? Not Mm -hmm. just what am I going to do, but what are they going to do? And how can I tell that they're doing it? Yes. You know, it, I just can't, I just can't depend on hoping that looking at their eyes and thinking that they're getting it. There's got to be some kind of action coming out of the child or the, or the, the student to be able to determine if they really are understanding. And that can be as simple as a turn and talk, you know, absolutely turn and talk. Yes, absolutely. A stop and jot something. Mm -hmm. Yes. To quote our, Dear friend Donna Gordy, hope is not a strategy. It is not a strategy. <laughs> oh, that's, that's such a, a good great one. one. We need to make a um, we need to make a, a poster for that. A refrigerator magnet, maybe. <laughs> a coffee cup. <laughs> so I, I hope that the students get it. No, I am planning for them to get it. So that's what right. will I say? What will I model? What will I do? How will I engage them? And how will I check? For sure, is the strategy. Absolutely. You know, when I think about engagement, I know y'all probably heard this, but something that really stuck with me was, you know, you've got Sage on the stage and God on the side. And that really stuck with me about engagement. You know, it goes back to you can have a really bang up lesson that you own as the adult, the leader of learning. But if the kids aren't on on the journey with you, what really, what have you accomplished? So you have to be more of that guide on the side because I'm going to go back to my friend, Dr. Mark Cooper, whoever does the most talking does the most learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. God on the side. I love that. I'm do too. So engagement was not a big focus of mine. I would say until, I don't know, eight years in, bless all these people I've taught before <laughs> before then. <laughs> but I really started learning about engagement and, and we're going to talk more about it, but engagement is not just being busy, but true intellectual sure. engagement. 
And the more I learned about it, the more passionate I became. And, and the sad thing about learning more about it is then it put me in the position of being so reflective about when I am disengaged. Mm. I want us to think about, we've all been in this situation of, okay, times that we are disengaged. And I always, sometimes in college, I would teach people who were teaching, who were going to be preachers. I'd be like, guys, you could, this is key for you. Absolutely. Church is a big time where I can become very disengaged, a long presentation, hopefully not this podcast listeners, but I want you to think about, let's, let's think about what happens to us when we are disengaged. Or our mind goes somewhere else. Yeah. I started thinking about baby. <laughs> Sorry, Michael. I'm, I'm writing my grocery list. Oh, That's yeah. I'll start my to-dos, my grocery list. It's like you said, my mind is somewhere else. We check our watch. We think, gosh, I hope there's oh. not a line at Subway. There's mm-hmm. always a line at Subway. I hope there's not a line today. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh. Our mind goes somewhere else. I think about when engaged, it's, it, my eyes may be on the speaker. It, you know, I may look like I'm engaged, but I am in a different world. Mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that we've got to really work for um, is to keep the student's attention. And I always tell my, my teachers who I'm training, we've got to plant seeds of engagement. I think a lot of times and I use preachers as my example, when do you pay the best attention at church? When do y'all pay the best attention? That's at the beginning of the sermon. I was going to say that. I've taught myself to take notes. Yeah. But that's that's intentional and purposeful. But at the beginning of the sermon, I start, Mm -hmm. I really am honed in. And I have committed to it. I'm, I'm going to listen this week. You know, if I come in with a game plan, I start off strong and then I dip. And then at the end, I pick back up. Well, there's actually a lot of research about how mm-hmm. adults have about a 12-minute attention span. And I really think mine is 12 seconds. Uh, I think <laughs> it's probably different now because of social media and just it just technology, you know, we're zipping from thing to thing. We're we're on Instagram. We're on whatever TikTok or whatever, and so it's changing often. So I don't know what that research looks like now, but I do know this: if we don't have a plan for, we're going to do five minutes or ten minutes of something, and then we're going to do a different activity, and then another ten minutes, kind of a almost a catch and release. I think that's probably the best analogy. So I'm going to do a catch. I'm going to have them, and then I'm going to release them. And they're mm-hmm. going to do an activity or a project or at least turn and talk or jot, stop and jot. I like to stop and jot something where they have to do something. I think that's important for planning to keep kids engaged. And I think I don't want people to be scared when they hear her say activity. She's not meaning a huge thing. It just means there needs to be a shift in what is happening. That's probably a better word, Laura. Shift yeah. is a way better word, actually. Yeah. Yeah, there's our brains are we're pattern seeking, but we're also novelty seeking for that new thing. Let's say that I'm teaching uh, fifth grade math. Beware, people. And I'm up there modeling and talking through. I I cannot do that for 12 minutes. 
I have, my students are gone probably after three. So, yeah. you know, what can I do as just little, a seat as a pickup? So in, in, when my field one students, we had hand motions. We're going to attain attention, but we're going to maintain attention. And I think as teachers, it's easy to attain attention, to get their attention at the beginning, but then how do we maintain it? Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, that is good. So, so that's where our seeds, like I said, you need to be planting seeds when you're when you're lesson planning. How are you going to make sure that there's a pickup in the brain? And and that comes from accountability, really. So Renee, when you're working with new teachers, how do you accomplish that? You know, I was just listening to y'all and thinking about something that I learned. I don't even remember when I learned it, but it was a down and dirty strategy called SNAP. Stop now and process. And the it's so simple, so easy, takes two minutes max. But it's where students have to stop and process information often or we lose their attention, but they lose what's most important to be learning as well. And so when I work with new teachers, we talk about when you design a lesson, that backwards design approach, you know, you, you have to start out with your end in mind being, what do your students need to know and be able to do? That's important. So we're, when working with new teachers, you know, we talk about understanding by design, you know, you start with the end in mind because you do have to make sure. And I think this is so important about engagement. Engagement is very, very important, but it's important that they're engaged on the right content. You know, just because students are engaged in an activity, they're collaborating and they're learning. They may not be learning the right information, the right content. So we talk about, you know, you start with what they need to know and be able to do to begin with. And then you start that backdoor process. You're creating those engaging tasks to help them be able to acquire that knowledge that they need to um, master. And we talk about the different types of activities that you might have in place to help them do that. Um, and then in the engaging task, of course, it goes back to backdoor. We talk about how students are going to have to be able to collaborate with one another how that's going to have to be very structured so that there are not issues with classroom management. So it's that planning process that I visit with new teachers about. And then within that planning process, we talk about how to create engaging activities. You brought up, you made me think of something because whenever we do do group work or maybe they're standing up and they're moving in around the room and that's purposeful, sometimes it's extremely chaotic. chaotic. When we're doing activities like that, and our purpose is to engage in the content, we just have to be so careful that we've been very explicit on how to work with a partner, how to work with the group, or how to move around in the inner outer circle or whatever you're doing. And a lot of times the way I did this was I would teach the strategy I was going to use the day before. So an inner outer circle, I would teach that with something fun. So ladies and gentlemen, we're going to stand up. I'm going to show you exactly what to do. And you're going to tell your partner your favorite thing to eat. And that's just simple. You know, it doesn't even involve the content. And we practice the strategy. And then tomorrow, I know that's probably going to be hairy, going to be hairy. They've already tried it out and it goes so much smoother when I'm asking them to do it with content. Yeah. 
Yeah, and research actually backs that up, that we should teach it with a new strategy with something they're already familiar with before we apply it to new content. So kudos, good job. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even know I was following research. That's exciting. Okay, I want to bring up something that I, I have referred to I've just mentioned many times about our table. My table is full. The student's table is full. And the table is huge when we're talking about engagement. And I don't, Kim or Renee, you made me think of this. We really are fighting for their engagement. And the the table is our our short-term attention span. So our short-term memory. And how much can we handle at one time? But when you look at the research, students can, and it varies between age, but students can handle three to five. Sometimes even research can show it can go to seven, but there's never any time that I can think of seven, seven things at once. But what, what happens to us is let's say we, we, I want to get something downstairs. I go downstairs to get something and then I get down there and I can't remember what I was looking for. What what was on my table fell off my table when I got downstairs because something else slipped in my mind to replace it. So I, when I'm teaching this model, it's the information processing model, which we're going to do a whole episode about from David Sousa. But I, when I think about if I'm teaching kindergarten, they can handle about three things on their table. And if they're mad at their friend from recess, that's one of the things on their table. So there's only room for two things. And what if I'm hungry? So I've, there's one more piece of thing that they can handle on their table. What I'm trying to do in my classroom is to get them to forget that they're mad at their friend and get them engaged so they're not thinking about being hungry. So I have room for all three of their items that can be on their table. And then as we get older, we can handle more. So in engagement... That's that's why I I just do such a focus on engagement is because I am fighting to be at the table, and and I can I I can arrive there and I can get my content on their table if engagement is a focus. What do you guys think about that? Uh, I think that's exactly correct. That kids have other things on their minds besides school. Mm-hmm. They have. They may have had a fuss with mama in the car on the way to school, or they may not have had supper last night, or they may be worried because mom and daddy had a, I mean, we don't know. We don't know what's on their minds. And we, we try to plan the best activities, but that goes back to relationships. You got to know your kids right? because they come to school with all kinds of things and going on in their lives that are, they have nothing to do with school. And so when we're planning those, we've got to, this has to be a safe place for them. I know we say that a lot, but it's true. It has to be a safe place. And when they come to us, um, we've got to set up a, a situation for them where they can take those other things and put those out of their mind. That doesn't have to be our focus right now. Not really sure how to make that happen, but but I do know that children Little bitty children have to deal with great big problems sometimes. Right. Yeah. You know, I think think that's that's why why it's so important that we build a community in our classroom. Um, And I think engagement 
helps us be able to do that while we still are focusing on the learning. Um, Engagement outdoors community. That's right. It does. I mean, you know, they do. They come to school with so many things that have happened. But if they can come in, I think about morning meetings, y'all. You know, so many times we, poor teachers say, I don't have time to do a morning meeting because my schedule is so tight. And I'm thinking, you don't have time not to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that time where you transition them from home to school, Kim, in that safe environment you're talking about. And they know they're coming into an environment where they're, they're loved, they're accepted. They can be who they are and that their classmates and their teacher are there for them. And engagement, as, as Laura just said, backdoors that. If we are always planning purposefully and intentionally for how to have our kiddos work together, to think together, to question together, to, you know, that community is built over time. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, you know, I'm a a person, I have things that go on in my life. And I've been through times in my life where, my goodness, school was my safe haven. Like when I came to school, I didn't have to think about other other stuff. So how do we do that for kids? Like I, there have been times where I've had a lot on my plate as a mom and just surviving. And when I got to teach those third graders, I didn't think about anything else but teaching those third graders and working with those third graders. So I think as teachers, how do we create a space where they can leave that at the door, just like we need to leave that at the door, and be so involved and so engaged so that we're not worried about, we're we're not worried about it. It's not on our mind because like Laura said, we can only hold so many things. And so how do do we create that space? The way that that I'm... The way that I handled this with the um, with older students at the college level uh, recently is music was always playing as they walked in. I am trying to regulate their emotional state. And so I would always have something kind of peppy on. And when I started class, I typically would revisit something from the previous lesson. So turn and tell your partner something that you remember or that they need to remember about phonological awareness or something like that. And yes, it was to refresh memory, but also it was to establish safety in the known. I'm always trying to think about how do I, how do I ease them into learning and how to, how do I provide comfort so that they are primed? It's like I'm putting a primer on the wall. And I, and I do that with music and talking to them as they come in. And I try to be funny. So trying to relax the situation because a lot of times my students were coming in, they were very stressed. I had a ton of student athletes and they were, it was pretty much like they were working 80 hour weeks and trying to make my room a great place to be was one way that I tried to manage the table, you know, that you know, trying to get on their table. You know, Laura, that's interesting you say that. I didn't say this a while ago, but I'm also an adjunct professor. And we start every single class with a social and emotional learning activity. You know, it doesn't matter that these are adult learners. We're all human and we mm-hmm. all have the same basic needs. And so as you do, I'm there when they come in the classroom, I'm visiting with them, checking on them. Hey, 
are you feeling okay today? You know, when that head is down, we're just having those conversations and building rapport. But then we launch every single session with yeah, an SEL, SEL activity. activity. And when the students um, do their evaluations at the end of the semester, that's always mentioned. That's a highlight for them. Um, and it goes back to it builds community in the classroom and it shifts their thinking. It helps kind of ease the anxiety maybe of something that has just happened or something that's on their mind. And, and also they figure out that they're not by themselves. Other people are experiencing challenges as well. Mm-hmm. And they're sharing strategies with one another about how to handle life and school. And, um, so, yeah, I think, I think purposefully and intentionally, we set our classroom environments up to support, to support students. students. So talk a little bit, Renee, about what some of those social and emotional uh, learning activities would look like kind of at different grade levels, because I think it's so important. Kids are not learning at home how to deal with their emotions and social issues because parents probably aren't equipped. In some cases, parents may or may not be equipped with how to assist their kids in that direction. So talk a little bit about that. You know, what I think is interesting is something you do with a kindergartner, you can do with a pre-service teacher. You know, Renee, I say it all the time. Like I am, there's hardly any changes in me Mm -hmm. if I'm teaching kindergarten or I'm teaching a hundred teachers who are veterans. I think it goes back to, we all have those same basic needs, but you know, we'll do something because I'm not going to take the entire block of time for class to, you know, to spend on an activity for social and emotional learning. But like one of the things we'll do is um, gratitude. You know, it may just be that you come in and, you know, what are you grateful for today? You know, a lot of times our minds go to the negative. So how can we help prevent our minds from going there? How would you think about one thing you're grateful for today? You know, that's something a kindergartner can do. That's something pre-service teacher can do. Um, you know, we do an activity at the beginning of each semester where we do personality types and they do an inventory. It's called the five minute personality test and they figure out what animal type they are. And y'all that builds the greatest level of community in the classroom because then it's a big joke, you know, cause everybody knows what animal personality type you are. So throughout the semester, they'll go, Oh yeah, that's the line coming out of you or <laughs> That's the otter in you. And we talk about why we need all of these different personalities and then how they can learn a lot about themselves, how they communicate with other people. So you wouldn't do that same thing with, let's say, a kindergartner, but you can still do things that are personality inventories to help them start to learn about themselves and how to look at their strengths and areas of growth and how to start managing those. So I really can't say that what I do with pre-service teachers is really any different than I would do with kindergartners. I love that. That's true. I've noticed, I told, we talked about this before, but I, I didn't realize stickers had made such a comeback. And last year I taught high school kids um, who had characteristics of dyslexia and my goodness, they like stickers as much as a five-year-old. So you're right. For sure. People are people. Yeah. Yeah. People are people. In the amount of time that we might spend two minutes, three minutes doing something like that at the beginning of class, it, it will bear fruit because then a student might be able to be there with us. 
it's just, again, priming the brain and thinking about how we can engage them. And even if I'm doing a stand up, hand up, pair up, or something very simple, a turn and talk, if I don't monitor the room and address a little bit of the emotional need, then they will be passively doing a turn and talk or passively doing whatever I've asked. Yeah, that's a good point. That brings me to our next point, Laura, which is something you said and I love, is people end up studenting. Yes. Yes. (laughs) They begin studenting. Okay, guys. Tell us what that means. I well, this is it on my on my presidential platform. I'm going to make every human being or every teacher read building thinking classrooms. Yeah. I've mentioned it several times on the podcast, but this man, Peter L, who I, I don't know if he would ever come on the podcast, but I'll beg and plead. But in his research, he went into he and his team went into all kinds of classrooms, all grades, all content levels, etc. And what they noticed is, especially when teachers go up there and do a problem and they say, you try, you know, I've done one, now you try it. Or we, a lot of times in student behavior that they exhibit different things. Okay. So listeners and Renee and Kim, I'm going to explain one of the behaviors that we do and you can think, have I ever done this? As Peter explains to us some behaviors that we do when we student. And when I'm talking about studenting, I am not learning. I am being passive. I appear to be participating, but I am not. And so we have to be on our A game in fighting studenting. Some of the behaviors that he talks about are slacking and stalling. So maybe Kim is up there teaching something and she tells me to try it out or we've been talking about examples of this and then I have to make a list. You might see me digging in my backpack or I'll go sharpen my pencil or I'll go to the bathroom or I'll do something or maybe I'll get on my phone. I I am I am stalling. Or I'm just slacking. If I don't even try at all, I'm kind of slacking. If I'm getting on my phone and doing another task, I'm slacking. But if I'm on my backpack, I'm just stalling. In his research, he realized is students will slack and stall and just kind of wait for us as the teacher to come in and work the problem together at the board because they know they'll get the right answer. And when I'm teaching this to future teachers, they're like, oh my gosh, we do we do that. And I'm like, I do it too. Another behavior that he found when they were observing teachers is the fakers. So they're flipping through their textbook. They're appearing they're sitting to think really hard. They are pretending to write something on their page or they're pretending to read. And really, they are out to lunch. Guilty. <laughs> Guilty. I'm a faker. <laughs> I always say, ladies and gentlemen, I am a faker to 
This is me so many times, especially in lectures. I just do not have the attention span to listen to it. And so I am sitting there nodding my head or looking intently at the speaker and I'm boring holes (laughs) at them. But I am thinking about the weekend at the lake, but it does not appear that way at all. Okay, I'm going to take a different spin on it. Okay, tell me. I was a struggling learner in elementary school. And so those strategies that students are using, struggling learners use because of the fear of looking dumb, for a better Mm -hmm. word. And so I still, as an adult, sometimes I will have the fear of being wrong or being perceived as not knowing something. And so I am guilty of doing those things sometimes because of that fear of I am not going to look like I'm intelligent. I'm not going to look like I know what's going on. I'm not going to know the information. Man, you just made me think of something. When someone uses a very sophisticated word or starts talking about a topic and I'm sitting there nodding my head, I'm faking. Yeah. 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 Okay. So another behavior that the researchers found is mimicking. You know, the students will just do what we did. They're just following the same steps. They're not thinking about the steps. They're just doing what we've done or possibly what their partner has done. And what Mr. Peter L. just really challenges us to think about, and this goes hand in hand hand with engagement, is making sure that our students aren't passive, that they're not just studenting, because when we student, we are not learning. You know, like that. That's so true. I'm in a workshop this week with teachers, and man, it's a lot of heavy stuff. Alex, a lot. It's very challenging training to become a dyslexia therapist. I had a master's degree in reading. And when I went through that training, I was like, holy smokes, I I need to go home. Like, I can't do this. And I wonder sometimes if they just like, it's oh, like, I don't know this because I can't see inside brains. But I remember myself in those times and thinking, I, I mean, I would just be thinking about something else because my brain could not handle any more. Mm-hmm. So I, I see that with struggling readers and learners too. You know, they, their brain just cannot handle another thing. So they're just checked out and they are going to look busy or they're going to be looking like they're flipping through their book or whatever whatever strategy they have, coping strategy. Um, yeah, they're studenting. They're not a problem. They're never a problem. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> when I learned about this, I I was just flabbergasted and I would start analyzing myself and and students just thinking about it. And I I, I it was almost like a convict like I was called to the altar <laughs> on it. So Kim I think you brought up a good point. We can all think about it because most of us are teachers and we sit in professional development sessions. So listeners, think about how do you student when you're in a professional development session? 
And Kim, what you were talking about when things got too hard, that meant their mental table was full and they, they could not accept anything else. So a review would probably be a good part there. So for thinking about how, how, how do we student, and then we need to remember that smaller bodies are probably doing more studenting than we even are. And man, when you're, when you're talking about Renee, you know, you were struggling and that's what you did. Our high school and our junior high people are coming perfectionist at coping skills and staying mm-hmm. under the radar. So their friends don't notice or their teacher doesn't notice. And so they may be the best students of all. Yeah. Yeah. I see that a lot myself um, when I'm working with junior high and high school kids. You know, I, I think that goes back to engagement though, again, and us being a um, guide on the side, being involved, being in that classroom, listening, clarifying, asking good questions you know, like you said a while ago, ensuring that there's accountability for their learning in a safe environment, as Kim said earlier. Um, I think that is what's so important for struggling learners is to understand, again, you're in a classroom, a community of learners where we support one another. And it's okay if you don't know it. We're going to all work together to ensure we all learn this. And I'm not sure that, um, I don't, I'm not sure that all of our students feel that safety. but anyway, off my side. Well, I think this peer, peer pressure is so strong. Yes. And, and I think Kim and I have talked about this bunch. We're going to, we're going to save face. You know, I will do whatever yes. it takes to make sure that, that those people in my class do not think that I'm stupid. Mm-hmm. And so I will just fake and I will just sit there and nod my head. Yeah. And I think what happens so often, I think this has happened for me in the past. I can't speak for other people is that those kids well, I know it happened with my son. Those kids slip under the radar. Everything looks fine. Um, but there is a cost. You know, there is a cost. And the, they're not learning what they need to learn. Um, Landon sent me a text one time when he was in high school, and it said, learning in this school is it's just not happening. I mean, I don't even know what a gerund is. And I said, you just used a gerund. And he was like, well, what is it? I mean, I'm in the 10th grade and I don't know what it is. And they're expecting me to know this. Okay, so will you just use one? Tell us tell what us a gerund is. It's a, it's a verb used as a noun. <laughs> so learning in this class. So I'm like, you just used one. He's like, I don't know. I didn't learn this. But anyway, you can cut that out too. I don't know. What to anyway, <laughs> but there is a cost and kids look like they're learning and we don't know until it's way too late that they have not learned what they need to learn. So we've got to have a strategy in place that engages those learners at every level. And on what they need to be learning. You know, I, I'm going to reiterate what I said earlier. It's so important that there's not just engagement, but engagement that is targeted or focused on what students are supposed to be learning at that grade level. And that it serves as a formative assessment. Yes. We are and a formative assessment. If you're not familiar with that terminology, that is just me checking just a a continual check, not a grade, just checking for understanding and just ensuring that I am planning. Maybe I have a turn and talk. Maybe I have a stop and jot. 
um, maybe I do a round robin where everybody shares one thing in the group and they go around and around and around, but that I am checking that I'm walking around and, and making sure that I'm hearing something or even I'll use uh, the choral responses or show me, you know, mm-hmm. oh gosh, it's so easy. And with little kids, cause they, their math problems can happen on two hands, but, you know, making sure that I am scanning. And even though that is an engagement strategy, but it is an, I'm backdooring assessment. I'm checking, but to be very careful that I am, I'm using those seeds to make sure that I'm checking their knowledge. Yeah, I think that's true, Laura. I think with mid-level and high school kids, particularly maybe even college kids, that we tend to think that we can um, do this class discussion and it looks, and we're trying to have a discussion. I mean, we're not just up here talking. We're not the sage on the stage. We're having a classroom discussion. But what happens in that, really? I ask a question, Renee answers it. I ask a question, Laura answers it. That's not a discussion. That's that's not a classroom discussion. Mm-hmm. So we got to have, I mean, it's, people are not engaged because David Mitchell is at the back and he's not talking unless it's about civics or government or history. He's not going to be up there talking in English class. That's not going to happen. He doesn't care about the catcher in the rye, but (laughs) it's not going to happen. So um, what are some strategies that we can have in place? Some of our favorite ones of, of total participation strategies that we can use as classroom teachers to make sure that we're not losing kids because they're not engaged. Well, listeners, I just want to tell you that if you have, if you do not own the book, Total Participation Techniques, it should be in your Amazon cart immediately. This book, gosh, Amy, our friend Amy got me reading this book 14 years ago, something like that. And it's just a user-friendly book that has so many different kinds of strategies. And so I just, so many times when I'm working with teachers, I need strategies. This is a great resource for you. Uh, you guys share some strategies and I'll think about which ones I want to share the most. I just want I did not want to forget to mention that. You know, that's something I'm telling on myself, but strategies that I use are quick down dirty strategies. They're not anything that takes a great length of time because you want them to engage and then come back to the task or whole group, whatever is happening. Um, Y'all have already mentioned the ones that I use a lot on turn and talk. Um, We use whiteboards still, you know, where everybody has a whiteboard and they show it um, using technology through polls. You know, you can um, check understanding. Um, We snap. I mentioned that while ago. Stop now and process. And they have to process out individually. Then they process out with a partner. And again, as Laura said while ago, I am listening or every partnership may have to share out. Um, So those are my top ones. Mine are probably stop and jot and quick writes. Just a quick Mm -hmm. write. Just, all right, I want you to put in your own words. Uh, a summary of what we just said, or uh, ha- honestly, I've used hashtag. I use hashtag a mm-hmm. lot. I teach kids to hashtag them to get the the topic or the main idea 
just hashtag. I, I use that. That's not one of them in the book, but I use that one. It's kind of a stop and jot. Quick rights. And then I love gallery walks oh, where too. kids walk around the room and view and discuss different stations on posters. Um, I, I love them. I like to do that with teachers. I like to do that with with kids. I just think it's it gets them up and out of their seat. So really, those are my favorite ones. Um, Laura, what about you? Well, typically I plant one time for them to get up out of their seats. So most of the time I am teaching in one hour and 15 minute segments and I will plant some type of movement in the dip somewhere in, in, in the 30 to 50 minute range. And that just nourishes the brain and gets them up. Really, it does spark engagement. I have, I have boards all around my classroom. So there's nine whiteboards hanging and I like we'll maybe be talking about something and I'll say, all right, everybody go to the board closest to you with your partners and make a list of examples of this or do a Freyer model of this word or, you know, whatever. But that is huge for engagement because I am just like when you get tired and you stand up or you chew gum or the windows are rolled down, it just perks, perks you up a little bit, but then I'm linking it to content by having them do something. Um, other strategies of favorite of mine are ranking. So maybe there's, you know, I'm I'm reading about something and then I can say, okay, rank these in order of importance or what matters most to you or the um the most descriptive details and then compare that with a neighbor. The ripple strategy is shared in total participation techniques. Actually, I think ranking is too. But a ripple is I ask a question and I give you just a little bit of time to answer it on your own. And then you share it with your partner or group. And then I ask the question to everyone. Mm -hmm. So Heimel and Heimel are the authors of this and they have a whole paragraph and it it says calling on someone is the last thing you should do. And when I think about how many times that I call on people. I just think, what happens? I say, what's the state capital of Texas? And a few people raise their hand and I call on one person. Everybody else is, is saying, praise the Lord, she didn't call on me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just so thankful. And so if I can activate a ripple or turn to your neighbor and figure out the state capital of Texas, go real quick. Four, three, two, one. All right, guys, I want you to tell me, I want to hear right now from everybody. What's the state capital of Texas? then at least I have turned all brains on for a second. But I, the ripple is the ripple goes back to SEL, to social emotional learning. I am making a safe space. So I asked that question. I'm not really sure. And so I'm going to take my best guess and write it down or just think it. But when I'm talking with my group, I can either steal Renee's idea or mm-hmm. I can be confirmed or affirmed about my idea. And then I feel freer to share. So I I had an intro class one year that was the biggest challenge, teaching challenge I've probably ever had. There were 34 students in there. That was back before our room was a great learning environment um, visually. I had a, I swear I had the whole baseball team in, in my class as males. And the girls were very intimidated. It just is how it was. 
and the boys really were intimidated, I think, by the content and probably because I brought too much passion at 8 a.m. But I would ask a question and there would be no response. And so I just got to the fact where I, I would say, you're going to be discussing this with a partner or you're going to have some quiet reflection time before I even said the question because no one was going to answer it. And if one brave soul, Mark Morse, if you're listening, you were my brave soul, answered, everybody else wasn't thinking of their answer. They, 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 were, they were perfecting the studenting behavior. And so I had to combat it. You know, that actually sets the struggling learner up for success. Absolutely. Uh, when you use a strategy like that, because they're no longer focused on, oh, MG, am I going to be called upon? And I'm, I'm not going to know the answer. Mm -hmm. So you're setting them up for success to, you know, listen to someone else. I mean, even if they don't have a clue what it is, they're going to be listening intently to their partner or their group response so that they have something to share if they're called upon. So that's a, that's an awesome strategy to use with struggling learners. Hey, I just was thinking about something. Sometimes we'll call on students because we know they're not paying attention. I think we really need to avoid that. I'll catch myself doing that too. And as soon as I do it, I think, why didn't I just walk over there and tap them so. instead of using that? It, it was, I don't know if it's a, it's a move of aggression from me, but I'm frustrated with them because they're not paying attention. So I'll just call them out. And really, I, I'm, I'm messing relationships up there. I don't know. Listeners, just ponder on that. How can you, how can you avoid calling on one person? And that will, it will demand us to up our strategy bank. I'll share one more that I love that really ends up being several. I mentioned a little bit earlier. So Kagan, Kagan has a great book called, called yes. Cooperative Learning Strategies. They also, I mean, they yes. have tons of great stuff, but they really focus on establishing structures in your classroom. And these are really strategies, but they call them structures. And they'll have these different robins. So I might... I'm, um, let's see, a single round Robin would be if I'm sitting at a group of four, we all just go around and say one thing or a continual round Robin would be, they go around saying one thing. So I say one thing, you say something, Renee Kim says that one something, and then we go around until the teacher says stop. Um, all record round Robin is everything that is said by a group member is written down by the group members. And so kindergarten teachers thinking about, I can definitely do this verbally, um, but maybe they can draw pictures to represent their thinking instead of words, because that, that would probably look different um, than any other grade. But just trying to think about how can, because I will get in a rut where I'm just turning and talking all the time. And I have to think, how can I mix up the turn and talk and be a little bit different? I you love that, Laura. I'm so, so glad you shared I about, with it. about the non-linguistic <laughs> representation. That is that when is I, I use a lot. Okay, um, say that again, Renee. I said, I'm so glad that you mentioned about kindergartners drawing. I use that at all grade levels. And that is something that students enjoy so much. And they have to summarize their learning as a group through a non-linguistic representation and then verbally share out what does it represent. That is one I use often. And it, it truly engages everyone. And it 
brings fun to the classroom. I didn't talk about backdooring fun a while ago with uh, engagement, but, but it brings fun to the classroom. Everybody's having fun. So that's a big one. And I wanted to mention this one too. And I learned this in a professional development probably 15 years ago, but it's creating an elevator speech. Oh yeah. Uh, students look at you and go, an elevator speech? What, what do you mean? I'm like, how long are you on an elevator? And they'll go, oh, maybe 60 seconds or less. I'm like, okay. Then what's your elevator speech going to be? Tell me more about this. But it has to be within that time frame. And it just, they enjoy that as well. I don't know. It's just linking it to something that they're familiar with and they enjoy it so much. And then they all share out and it's, um, I don't know. It's a powerful strategy, but it's just really down and dirty. It's easy to use. I think, I think, I think both of those strategies, the non-linguistic and the um, elevator speech. Both of those are pushing the brain because if, if I have an older student, I say, well, you have to represent classroom management in a visual, like, well, we can't do it. Okay, work together to come up with something. It really mm-hmm. makes them dig into, well, what is classroom management and then how could I represent it? Yeah, and I think that's true. I'm sorry, go ahead, Renee. I was just going to say, we uh, have students, pre-service teachers create their classroom vision at the very beginning of the semester. You know, what is your classroom vision? But don't tell me it's going to be in pictures. Mm. And you have to have nine categories that you want to represent your classroom vision. And they are amazing. They put, a lot of them will put a um, slideshow together. I give them the option to do old school posters. They still want to do artsy crafty that way, or if they want to do a slideshow. And I'm just amazed every semester how powerful they are. And then they share out using their iPads, they share out their slideshows, or if they chose to do the poster board, they share out their poster in their group. And the conversations are so powerful. They're like, I never thought about having a calm down corner. That looks so cozy. And it looks, you know, I mean, the conversations are amazing. You made me think of something, Renee, because so many times teachers will use like a jigsaw method where you know, one part of the class will read this chapter or this section, and then we're all sharing out. And that is a huge dip in engagement a lot of times because the listeners become very passive when the students are up there presenting. So if you are going to activate something like that, and I highly encourage you to activate presentations, but think about how can you engage and keep your listeners accountable? I think Bingo. one way to do that would be through a gallery walk. So after they've created something, then there's a gallery walk. I wanted to kind of touch on that whole non-linguistic representation because I work so closely with, um, you know, struggling learners and dyslexic kids or kids who are dysgraphic. Spelling and writing are horrible and they're just, they have such a negative connotation with that or negative feeling about that, I guess really is. Um, I think that gives everybody a chance to respond, but it gives them a chance to shine. Oh, for sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah. They get a chance to shine. And I think when you're, when you're thinking about um, our struggling learners and those people who are 
maybe going to drop out. We know that like about 75%, three out of four, three-fourths of kids are people who are in the prison system are high school dropouts. And 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 one of the they say they dropped out is boredom. Yeah. Yes. Bored. They're bored. So if we want kids to stay in school and that's what we want, then we're going to have to be able to set up an environment where they aren't bored, where they are engaged in the learning and where they can be successful because we want them in school. We want people to be successful. Yeah. Good point. I thought of one more strategy, Renee, similar to the elevator speech that students get really worked up about. So let's say that we, I'll just use the classroom management um, example again. We've been learning about classroom management. I want you to take a sheet of paper and write down your definition of classroom management in 10 words. And then Mm. I say, okay, now you have to cut out five of those. And now you have to cut it down to three. I can't do it. I'm like, yes, you can. And then I'll say, okay, now with your group or a partner, you guys have to create a definition in five words or less. And then we we all almost always get it down to one word. But that is a quick engagement strategy that I can rip out of my pocket um, that really does engage the brain and goes to content and they have fun because yeah. they think they can't and they really can. Yeah, that's challenging. Mm-hmm. You're challenging their thinking. I like that. Yeah. I love it. So if kids are engaged and they're cognitively and physically engaged, what do we expect, Laura? I mean, talk about what that engagement model would look like. I mean, we can't live there. Okay. You're correct. So thinking about, oh, So thinking about engagement, and I I meant to say this earlier, I said I would get to it and I forgot. So sorry, listeners. But engagement is not just a physical activity. It's a brain activity, too. When you read Danielson Framework for Teaching, Arkansas Teachers Test, when you go back to that, engagement is a cognitive activity. So I can be very engaged and not even be talking to someone. It's the mental turn on of the brain. So in in this teach in this total participation techniques in the total participation techniques research Hamel and Hamel came up with a model that will help us as teachers identify engagement. So if you're at home listeners get you a sheet of paper if you're driving just visualize it or if you just don't want to get a sheet of paper you can just visualize it. But the model, like Kim was talking about, is so simple. But divide your paper into four sections. You do you, Lucy Smith. You do you. So what I want you to think about is there are four sections that students and we fall into for engagement. I want you to label your sections one, two, three, and four. So if we are engaged and we're at, I will say, just a level four or a, we're at a one, that means my brain isn't really on and not many people are doing it. So thinking about class, 
if I'm up there talking a whole lot, my students are probably at a one because they've become very passive. So they're not really thinking. And really the only person that is thinking is me. And ladies and gentlemen, that is a dangerous place to be. We will be there at some points. I promise you, I will be there, but we just can't stay there. So if I'm a two, if I'm at this, um, I don't want to say level two, quadrant two, whatever. If I'm at a two, that means brains really aren't completely trying very hard, but everybody is doing it. So I, I don't know if I came up with it or somebody else did, but I, I say when when kids are having fun, but things are kind of forgettable, it's a two. A lot of times cahoots are twos. Everybody's enjoying it. They're loving it, but their brain isn't really thinking hard. Does that make sense? So a three would be my brain is on. Like I am thinking deep, but not many people are doing it. So sorry, social studies teachers, but many times this is what happens when we're in a history class. I am geeking out with the teacher and a few other people are. We're going deep into the progressive era and I'm so excited about it. But most of the class is not doing it. So that's a three. And then the four is brains are going deep and they are on and the majority of your students are doing it. So once I learned this model and it came from the total participation techniques, I I got, I I started practicing almost coding myself and being very aware of when I was slipping into a three or I was slipping into two. And what, what I always tell people is, I try to hit four as much as possible. And maybe that's just once in class. That's fine. But I have to hit it at least once. If, you know, the thing, the way that we remember things long term is it has to make sense and our memory has to, like, it has to activate some emotional thing to it. And so if I can get everybody involved, if I can get everybody truly engaged, then they're more likely to remember it. Okay, tell me your thoughts about that model. What do you What do you guys think? And did I explain it okay? Do you have questions? Question. Well, I do have a question. So, we you're right. We're all going to be in all the quadrants. So, let's think about as or if we're working with teachers or just ourselves in our classroom, we want to stay in two and four, right? <laughs> we want to stay yeah, yeah. in two and four. Okay. okay, let's talk let's about start. let's talk about why we want to stay in two and four. Is I need everybody involved. If I'm one, if I'm in one and three land, I've got classroom management issues. And even if they're sleeping, it's a classroom management issue, or they're on their phones. So I'm trying to stay away from ones and threes. I want to be in twos and fours because I want everybody participating. And the reason why it's fine to go into land is I have to have a little bit of a mental break. So maybe I'm taking you deep and then we review some content we already know. Well, your brain isn't having to think as deep about the review thing. And so I would be going into it too. 
And I'm going to come back to a four with a deep question that you're talking about with your neighbor. I just tell people, if you're teaching and you're always trying to be a four, you'll probably want to quit your job by the end of the year. You'll be tired and you'll have a lot of gray hair. And your kids will be exhausted. So bouncing back between that two and four is where we really want to live. And you don't have to stress out about just, you know, coming in like a rock star every day, but we do need to be paying attention to planting seeds for engagement to keep our neighbors and being very aware of when you slip into, like I am doing right now, I'm slipping into probably a three land right now. People are starting to get tired. And so I need to be like, oh, let's stop and do something different or let's let's process that. Does that make sense? It does. And it's helpful to think about it just kind of defines your where we are and where we need to be, I think, for teachers. I, I do. I love that. I'd actually forgotten about that, Lauren. You brought that to my attention. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And if you want to, in this Total Participations Techniques book, they have a, pra- they have a practice exercise where you can go in and, and code a, a teacher and say, oh, they're a four, they're a three, they're a one here, they're back to a three. That's what you would see if you came and watched any of us teach. Is you would see us bouncing all over the place. The, the caution that I always tell people is we just don't want to stay in one or three or two land too long because brains start relaxing. So anyway, I highly encourage you to really explore it because it really is life-changing. I, I, I truly analyze my teaching this way and I, I, I believe without a doubt it has made me a stronger teacher. Okay, so that's one way we can stay aware of the engagement levels in our classroom. Do you have anything else? Hmm. I think circulation is so important to do. What do I you mean? mean? Like I'm for- just- if I'm just walking around the room, I can just monitor, I can take the pulse of the room. Yes. Proximity to your mm-hmm. student. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And- I always do a, um, a quick formative assessment at the end of every session. And by their responses, I can tell where they truly cognitively engaged um, or not. And then I know where to pick up. And as Laura said, I'm, huge on reflection. You know, if I see that they're missing the boat, but yet I've had these engaging tasks and activities set up, then I'm being reflective. Okay. Something went wrong on my end. Um, So that gives me a lot of good information. I think so too. And I, I think we assign group work, but we can't just leave them to it Mm -hmm. because you know what happens I'll take over. <laughs> no, Laura. Just let me do that for you. Sure. That I'm is large. I'm a type, type A personality. I can get this done. I think maybe that's called a line in that five-minute personality <laughs> test. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when, when you read Kagan's work about cooperative learning, he really challenges you to think, is it group work? Or is it cooperative learning? And there is a distinct difference. Oh, that's true. Yes, that is so true. You know, I was so excited when you mentioned Kagan because the structures 
are so powerful when we marry it with the content that students are supposed to be learning. And what's interesting is I didn't even mention that at the beginning, but when I think about my past experiences, taking those standards and viable curriculum and marrying them with the Kagan strategies is so, so powerful. If you are starting from ground zero, maybe not knowing how to start with engagement, you know, what, what are some activities that I can do? That's a great place to start. I completely agree with you. If you ever are asked, do you want to go to Kagan workshop? Go. It, it is really life-changing. I mean, really any, any investment that you spend in learning how the brain learns and how to engage and marrying it with content, you, your, improve, your teaching will improve. It will. That's right. Uh, it will. I love those workshops and, and learning and just reading the books. I mean, just I, I own them and I try to use them. So we're toward the end, girls. It's been okay. fun. Um, I used to think, Laura, that a quiet room equaled engaged students. But now I know that mm-hmm. the people who do learning are the ones who do the learning. Mm-hmm. And it does not mean, friends, that your room cannot ever be quiet or that quiet students aren't engaged. It's just if they're quiet all the time, it's risky business. So oh, yeah. I I would if I if I only got to answer one with one word, Kim, I would say no. Because <laughs> I I'm not able to check if if they're truly engaged if it's just quiet all the time. Like, how do you know? How do you know if it's, if they're truly engaged and they're thinking deeply or if they're thinking about, dang, I wonder if I left here at five today, 730. (laughs) Renee, what do you have to say about a quiet room equals engaged students? I hope I'm giving the right person credit for this. Um, I think it was Stephen Barkley that I heard say, Yes. Oh, I use his model all the time when I offer professional development, but I think he is the one that said learning's messy. Mm-hmm. Kim, am I right? Yes. I know we came to Arkansas a lot years ago, but I'm pretty sure he's the one that said learning is messy. And, you know, when you go into a classroom and as a former administrator, you know, used to you, that could be a red flag. You would think, oh my gosh, this room's chaotic. You know, what's going on? Well, is it really chaotic? Or is it really that true learning is taking place? Yeah. You've got to dig deeper. I'm not saying that all talking and all activities leading to great learning, but you've got to look beyond the surface and you have to listen to the conversations and you have to look at the work that's taking place. And that really stood out to me when I heard him say, and I'm, again, I'm pretty sure it's Stephen Barkley that said, learning is messy. So I'm thinking a quiet classroom probably doesn't need to exist all the time. Not all the time. No. I think it would be a dangerous. I think I think we could lose a lot of learners if our rooms are are remain quiet. Yeah, so. me too. Okay. I'm a parent okay. of of both kinds of kids. I'm a parent of a kid that's like me, and he's excited, and you know he's up and doing and going. And then I'm a parent of a child who doesn't say a lot, and so you. What you said, Renee, is you've got to be in there and seeing what the conversations are and talking to the kids. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you're thinking right now, Lindsay. Lindsay, sorry. 
tell me what you're thinking right now. She's my quiet one. You don't know because she's not going to be the one that's talking. Yeah. And strategies and structures are difficult to get going. So people don't give up hope. You know, don't try one strategy and then just say, I'm never doing that again. You know, be really reflective. Did I give clear directions? Did I model it? Do I have the steps on the board? You know, did I support them in doing it? And I just don't want you to give up. And the, you mentioning those quiet students made me think of it because sometimes that that kind of makes me want to give up because maybe I have lots of quiet ones and I'm having to do too much work to push them into participating, but it is worth it, friends. It really mm-hmm. is. It is. You know, Laura, I want to mention one more thing that goes along with what you said, um, because I think it's very powerful. A lot of times, if it's not working, we have to be reflective in our own practices because there's something probably missing. And so I'm going to suggest that you take a look at the interactive modeling strategy because it is super powerful. It takes us as educators through a process of how we can teach procedures in our classrooms, um, classroom management expectations, a strategy. It's, it's almost like the gradual release model. It mimics that, but it's interactive modeling. Take a look at it. It would, it would be worth anybody's time if they are not familiar with it. Um, Do you have something like a website you can share with us that we can put in our show notes? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll definitely do that. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay. Next time we are going to do what, Laura? Well, we're going to share some just general engagement strategies more than what we shared today. What we'll do is we'll not just mention it, but we'll really walk through what does that look like and sound like, look like, sound like, feel like. And then the next time, so we're talking two episodes ahead, we'll do some content related. What would be some vocabulary strategies that I could do? What would be some specific math and things like that? I think we'll have fun, Kim. I do too. It's going to be exciting. We have great things planned. Yes. Please make sure you're following along on social media because we are surprising you with some bonus episodes and we do not want you to miss it. So please follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and also on your podcast app. Okay, listeners, as always, thank you for listening. We hope that today has helped you in some way. Our goal is to help at least one teacher help one student one day and one time. See you next Wednesday, everybody.